anybody out there watching Succession on HBO? Few, few hands, a very few hands. Oh, I'm not, I'm not entirely surprised. Um, I, I'm, I'm, not in, I'm not sure I feel entirely comfortable commending the show to you from the pulpit. Um, it's HBO, it's dark, it's cynical, it's a, it's a pretty brutal, and I think a very funny satire, a pretty funny takedown of the world of high finance and late-stage capitalism and the people who make it tick. And I will admit to you, I am obsessed with this show. Um, <laughs> I've been trying to figure out this week, like, what is it about, about Succession that I find so compelling? Um, and I suspect it's because, you know, I spend all day being nice to people, and it's so refreshing <laughs> to come home at the end of the day and watch people being beastly to one another on TV. I find it, like, viscerally satisfying. So, uh, so I'm obsessed. You may join me in that obsession, or you may watch a little bit of this and be like, absolutely not, I'm not going near this thing. I'll, I'll sum it up for you, for those of you who haven't seen it, just a little bit. Succession is the story um, of a very powerful, kind of King Lear-ish, Rupert Murdoch-ish, uh, corporate giant, a mogul, who is hospitalized on his 80th birthday following a stroke. And that sets into motion a whole host of dishonest managers in his life. He's got four kids, his kids have spouses and partners, there are other ancillary figures who are all vying for control of the family business in high Shakespearean fashion, and some of the most dysfunctional family dinners this side of a Tolstoy novel. It's marvelous. It's a show about power, it's a show about money and influence and control, the lives of these, these four kids, right, who are living out their father's legacy while also struggling with these deeply human questions of what it means to find fulfillment in life, what it means really to be happy in a compromised and corrupt world. As Jesus says in this morning's parable, sometimes the children of this age are far more shrewd in dealing with their own generation than are the children of light. It's a weird parable that he tells. Uh, it's one of those things that you, you, you hear it and you think, is that really in the Bible, actually? Uh, it, the only way that I really know how to contextualize this parable that Jesus tells, commending dishonesty, is that Jesus is a pragmatist in many ways, especially when it comes to money. This is a parable that seems to, to fly in the face of everything we think we know about Jesus of Nazareth and I'm sorry, I'm having difficulty with my mic here, but everything we think we know about Jesus of Nazareth, this ethic of kindness and compassion that he taught, he says, make friends for yourselves by means of dishonest wealth, so that when it is gone, they may welcome you into the eternal homes, literally that's the tents of the ages, right? The eternal tents. Make friends for yourselves by means of dishonest wealth, so that when it's all gone, right, presumably when you die, you will have this eternal tent filled with friends who will welcome you home. And he seems to commend dishonesty as a means of building that kind of a relationship. The crooked manager in the story that Jesus tells seems to be an, an illustration of exactly the kind of shrewdness that Jesus is commending. He's cheating his employer out of what is rightfully owed to him in order to shore up support for himself because he knows he's about to get fired. And then Jesus gives the story this twist, right? The master commends his servant for his cunning. This is from, right, a guy, Jesus, who has grown up on the margins of, economics, of an economic society. He's a guy who was chosen in his adult life to live as a, a kind of itinerant hobo teacher, right? He's, you know, working his own network of friends and supporters. He's journeying from town to town. He's probably mooching off relatives. He's cultivating a donor base, right? So Jesus, you know, he gets make, mean, make friends for yourself by means of dishonest wealth, right? That's actually exactly what he's doing. He's no simpleton. There's a system in place, an economic model in the world that he lives in, 
And according both to Jesus' religious upbringing in Judaism and his own experience as a, as a kind of marginalized worker in that economic system, that system is inherently dishonest, right? In the Gospel of Luke anyway, Jesus has a lot to say about money and the way that it flows, and most of what he says is pretty damning. But here, Jesus is coupling this very harsh, no-holds-barred takedown of the Roman economic system with a surprisingly, I mean, kind of cynical pragmatism, right? Make friends for yourselves by means of dishonest wealth. Maybe that means, you know, cheating the masters and the overlords. As far as Jesus is concerned, the system's already rigged in their favor. So working a corrupt system in order to make you a few friends along the way, right? Yeah, so be it, right? Make it work. Be shrewd. That's one of Jesus' favorite words, actually, be shrewd. Here our, our translation is shrewd, but this is a Greek word that elsewhere in the New Testament gets translated as wise sometimes, as sensible, prudent. The virgins that keep their lamps filled, right, they're described with this word. The man who builds his house upon the rock is described with this word. We call him the wise man who builds his house upon the rock. Another way of saying that would be the shrewd man who builds his house upon the rock. When Jesus urges his followers to be as innocent and as doves and cunning as serpents, that's the word he's using, right? Be as shrewd as a serpent. It's a word that actually comes from the Greek word for gut. We've got a little bit of an echo of this word in our English word diaphragm, right? That's a place that we, we teach sin singers to sing from or, or performers in order to make a big sound that can fill a room, right? When you sing or when you speak from your diaphragm, from this lower kind of part of your belly, you're singing from the core of your lung capacity. And that's the place, according to Jesus' usage of this word, that's the place where your decision-making comes from as well. So if we learn how to think from our gut, to think from our instinct, to make friends for ourselves by whatever means we have available to us, right? Then we are like the children of the age, right? The children of HBO, if you like the children of a, a morally ambigu am ambiguous and e economically corrupt system, who are, according to Jesus, often more in touch with their gut, more shrewd in dealing with their own generation than are the children of light. That's a little bit of a wake-up call, I think. So there's a line from Succession, uh, from the eighth episode, that has been kind of ringing around in my head this week. Uh, the, the daughter of the family, whose name is Siobhan, is lying in bed one evening with Nate. He's her ex-boyfriend, who is also a co-worker with her on a political campaign. They're both engaged to marry other people. Here they are. And Nate starts getting a little romantic with, with Siobhan, and she kind of pushes him off, right? She says, you know, <laughs> you know this is just fun, right? There's no God. There's nothing matters. She says, we're just people, we're all just people in rooms trying to be happy. We're all just people in rooms trying to be happy. And that line has been ringing around in my head this week. I don't, I don't share Siobhan's existential outlook on life. I actually think God might have quite a bit to say about the business practices illustrated in succession, and it might sound a little bit like the prophet Amos that we heard, right? Woe to you who trample on the needy and bring to ruin the people of the land, saying we're going to make the, the ephah small and the shekel great and practice deceit with false balances, right? That's, that sounds a little contemporary to me after having watched Succession. And yet this, this very human instinct in Siobhan's gut, right? We're all just people in rooms trying to be happy. That rings true for me. I actually think that's her way of saying something not unlike what Jesus is saying in the parable, right? Jesus says, no man can serve two masters. Your gut will tell you, if it's operating properly, where your happiness really lies. 
And so much of the spiritual life, as I understand it, is learning how to tune into your gut, your diaphragm, the part of you that Jesus calls the shrewd part, the wise part. I mean, call it wisdom, call it prudence. It's the place that our actions come from, even when we don't know quite why we're doing what we're doing. And it can lead us astray, God knows, right? We make horrible decisions sometimes when we lead with our gut. We make the wrong call, we hurt the people we love. The gut is not an infallible source of wisdom, but it's the only gut we've got. And so the spiritual life, I think, is this process of training the only gut we've got Getting in touch with it, first of all. What makes me tick? Who am I really? Underneath all of these learned patterns and false selves that my parents and my teacher and my clergy, my friends, have taught me over the years, at the dead center of who I really am, what does happiness really look like? I mean, is it, is it things? Is it money, respect, power, control? Is it experiences? Sex, love, marriage, kids, meaningful work, changing somebody's life for the better. I mean, what will really make me happy in a morally compromised world, right? What does faithfulness look like? So for Jesus the pragmatist, the whole system, the whole way that human beings interact with one another, that whole system is to some degree corrupt. Right? Human interactions, economic models, master-servant, olive oil and wheat, people in rooms trying to be happy. That's another way of saying there is no such thing as an unmixed motive. None of us have clean hands in this world. But we're here, and we're entrusted with a bunch of what Jesus refers to as dishonest wealth. Right? That's not just money. That's power, that's privilege, that's degrees we've earned, milestones achieved, the ability to do stuff, make things happen, win friends and influence people, however you want to think about it, very little that you have is really yours at all. All of it, to a certain degree, is dishonest wealth. So for Jesus, the question is not, how do I like, divest myself of all of this impure, morally compromised, dishonest power and privilege that I've accumulated? The question is rather, what does faithfulness look like as I set about trying to use it shrewdly? On the surface of things, the manager in this story is profoundly unfaithful, right? He's literally dishonest. He cheats his master out of what is rightfully owned to him. But the master commends him because in the context of the parable, there is a deeper principle at work here. What looks like dishonesty, what looks like faithlessness from the outside, turns out to be a deeper kind of faithfulness. Because the principle that Jesus is most interested in is not actually a kind of scrupulous moral purity. It's this ability to form relationships that matter and that will ultimately save you. I mean, that's actually kind of a radical theological principle, if you think about it. Make friends for yourselves by means of dishonest wealth, so that when it's gone, they will welcome you into the eternal homes, the tent of the ages, right? That's circumlocution for the kingdom of heaven, the life eternal. Heaven is not achieved in this model through our good behavior. Eternal life does not happen through moral scrupulosity. In this story, the way to get to heaven is to fill your life with friends. So the ultimate principle at work here is relationship, right? And there's a, certain, there's a certain degree to which, at least in this story, anything that builds an honest and authentic relationship with another person, a saving relationship, if you like, that's a faithful use of your dishonest wealth. 
I mean, most of us have been trained in the opposite direction, right? Like the characters on Succession, who remind me of so many ways of myself and the people that I know, right? We're taught to use other people as tools to get what we want, right? People become an end, a means to an end, whatever it is that we think that end might be, right? Relationships are a tool to power, they're a means to safety, a means to wealth and security, whatever I'm being seduced into pursuing. Relationships, therefore, become just so easily discardable when they're no longer serving that higher purpose. But Jesus is turning that principle on its head. He says everything you've got, wealth, power, influence, control, olive oil and wheat, she shekels and ephahs, right? The whole, the whole system, it all exists for the purpose of building relationships with people who are different from me. That's the real human economy. That's friendship. That's arguments, right? That's lovemaking. That's the rough and tumble of being in human relationships, the economics of being in the same room with other people who are also just in rooms trying to be happy. The place this parable falls in Luke, it happens right after Jesus tells the parable of the prodigal son. Do you remember that one? I think it's actually a really important interpretive key for understanding what's at work in this weird parable. In the story of the prodigal son, right, the, family, the son takes the family inheritance, he squanders it in dissolute living, he then makes his way, shame-faced, tail between his legs, back home, basically to manipulate his father into taking him back, right? We, we've neaten the story up, but the, the way the text actually reads is that the son is planning on pretty shamedly manipulating his dad in order to get what he wants, which is to be welcomed back into the family home, right? But the father in the story doesn't care about the son's motive. As soon as he sees the son on the road, afar off, the father goes running down towards him, right? Before the words are even out of his mouth, he has embraced his son, welcomed him back into the fold, and Jesus' message in this, I think, also disturbing parable seems to be God is just that desperate. It does not seem to matter to the Almighty One whether we come into a saving relationship to Savior and community through an honest doorway or a dishonest doorway. It just matters that we come. I mean, this altar rail is, a, is meant to be a testament to that, right? That, that relationship means making friends for yourself, becoming a, a friend of God, if you like, and that that building of relationship, building of friendship, that's the only thing that matters. It might actually be the, the gateway to eternal life, the doorway to heaven. And it doesn't matter, right? It doesn't matter who you are. It doesn't matter how morally compromised you experience yourself being, how corrupt or, or complicit the world thinks you are. The only thing that matters is that you come, that you keep showing up, that you leave behind the seduction of instrumentalizing other people in your life as a means to an end and ground yourself in this gut sense of what it means to be human, what it means to be a participant in a relational economy, this gut sense of forgiveness and connection and a saving, holy, uncompromised and uncompromising love. <laughs>